Greetings and salutations. Welcome to the island. My name is Daniel Frankman and I'm your host on the island. And today we have with us as a, our guest in this new episode, uh, Henry Aubin. Um, first things first, uh, if you could give us a little bit of detail on uh, who you are, uh, personal life a bit, and then we'll, we'll move on from there. Sure. Um, I was born in New Jersey. Uh, I went. I became a reporter uh, for several newspapers um, and a uh, Washington correspondent for the Philadelphia Bulletin, which was then a. Uh, it's now a defunct. Um, <laughs> at the time, it was a it was a very large circulation paper. Uh, then the uh, the Washington Post with the Bulletin. I was a White House correspondent. And uh, so I covered a lot of politics with the Washington Post. I covered mostly urban affairs. And when I was 30, my wife and I um, took uh, a life-changing trip. We uh, both quit our jobs in Washington. And uh, we went to Morocco for a, a full year. We, we lived in a, a quite isolated village. And what, what, we, what, what I had, had wanted to do in, in doing this was to see how the Western world, the industrialized world, uh, looked from a uh, different perspective, a third world perspective. And uh, it was quite edifying and influenced my uh, subsequent career. During that trip, we were also, uh, we also became pregnant and deciding where, where to live afterwards was largely determined by parenting, by, by our priority to uh, find a good city or a good town for our family. And that's how we came to to Montreal. Uh, so, so we've lived here about 45 years now. And one reason we came is that I was raised bilingually in, in New Jersey. My mother was was French. And I found that having both languages was a great asset and mm -hmm. was worth passing on to, to the kids. So that's one reason we came to this bicultural city. And here in, in Montreal, I've worked for the uh, the Montreal Gazette newspaper. Mm -hmm. uh, I did investigative work and uh, became an editorial writer and a columnist. And uh, yeah, it was about more than 40 years with, with the Gazette. And I, and I retired about uh, eight, eight years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm 78 now. And uh, we have four kids and they're all doing well. I guess that's my life. I think that's a, your life in a nutshell, very, very small nutshell. I don't know how many people listening or anywhere know that you, you, you went to Morocco for that year or, or the reasons for why you did it. Uh, but it's very, it's a very interesting uh, perspective, especially coming from the United States and you, Americans, let's say being bilingual, you think maybe Spanish and, and English, but you grew up with a, a French, a French family and a, and an American. How would you describe your life growing up in the States prior to uh, your career and everything? Um, your relationship with your parents, as I know you have siblings as well. Um, how was it growing up uh, in New Jersey? And whereabouts in New Jersey was it? Metuchen. Metuchen? Metuchen is six miles away from the campus of Rutgers University, where my father was a professor. Okay. Professor of English. And um, yeah, my, I, I had a great uh, childhood. And if you live in the third world for a while, you realize how blessed you are to grow up in North America. It's materially, it's just 
so wondrous. And uh, so I went to a public high school. I was captain of the track team. Uh, we uh, won the uh, state mile relay championship. Uh, so your event was the relay. You were, you were a relay runner. Yeah, I, I, I ran the quarter mile. Then I went to Harvard for, uh, for four years and uh, worked. Then I went to the Army, into the U.S. Army, and was a reservist. And after the Army, I became a journalist. So you'd say you had a, it was a positive experience, your parents, in terms of... Extremely positive. Uh, I was really blessed uh, by having two, um, two uh, parents who uh, did everything for their children. I, I had one older sister, and we've, she, she and I have, have discussed this recently, and, and, and we just agree so much as to how much we owe to our parents. And my, my father had been a... Uh, he had, he had been quite a, a very promising scholar. He had had his PhD at Harvard. He had been Phi Beta Kappa at Harvard. He had started as a on the faculty of Harvard. And during the, the Depression, when uh, suddenly jobs uh, were eliminated right and left, hmm. uh, he came to New, New Jersey to uh, to teach at uh, at Rutgers and. That's where he met my mom, who who was uh, from France, as I mentioned. Uh, she also was on the, she, she was a junior faculty member, and he, sac- I, I, I think in, in retrospect, what he did was he sacrificed, or perhaps sacrifice is too strong a word, he rather than continuing as a scholar publishing esoteric books on 18th century English poetry, he became a family man and put a lot of energy into raising his uh, into raising his kids and uh, into teaching and the teaching at, at Rutgers was not a glamorous job because he taught at the the, the women's college that was uh, uh, affiliate well, but it was was part of Rutgers mm-hmm. but at a separate campus uh, he put all his energy into Edu- uh, training or making a, uh, appreciative of English literature a new generation of high school teachers. And the English literature was his passion. And transmitting it to uh, young women who would in turn transmit it to their students all over the state mm-hmm. uh, was uh, his idea of being socially useful more socially useful than esoteric books on 18th century English poetry, which would be appreciated only by a handful of other scholars. I think that that, that idea of, of socially responsible, uh, I think he was a mentor for, for those students, uh, those female teachers. And, you know, being useful in society is something that, you know, as especially as a male role model for men and women, I think that's a, that's a, an exceptional story to have him, um, you know, choose to be a family man and go to Rutgers and really be socially responsible or socially useful, as you put it. Yes, I think that's yes. very That's very interesting, and and it's and as you said, to spread it around the state. You know, that's, uh, that's he's from from one person to his students, and from the students to their students around the state yeah. of uh, 
of New Jersey, a small state of New Jersey. Yeah. So um, maybe easier in New Jersey than, than Texas, maybe, but uh, <laughs> on sheer size. And uh, but you also said that you were in the army. Yes. Uh, was this required at the time? To, to yes, it was either get be drafted and go to uh, Vietnam, mm-hmm. or enlist in the reserves, and maybe not be sent to Vietnam. Uh, and at the time, this is in June of '65, all the reserve units in the United States were full up because everyone was trying to avoid going to Vietnam. And there's only one unit open in the entire United States, and that was in San Francisco. So instead of going to my college graduation ceremony, I, I went to San Francisco and signed up at this un- at this reserve unit. And it certainly paid off um, the army uh, because I, I, I wasn't sent. And the, the experience of being in the army, however, was probably the one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Did you think it was difficult for specifically you, uh, or others as, or others had an even more difficult time than yourself? Well, it was all men that were just. I I made the mistake of looking my drill sergeant in the eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do not do that. <laughs> do not do that. Look I, humble. I will, I will look not. humble. Look meek. Yes, yes, sergeant. Yes, that's what, that's what they expect. <laughs> So I was the uh, I, I was the uh, butt of the platoon. I mean, I was just given every task until I learned to be humble, or to pretend to be humble. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Learn to be humble in the army, or pretend. Um, and how do you think the the I mean the experiences you've you've already explained are 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 very large from from. And how do you think when you came to Montreal, your perspective on on your career and your family, that migration from, you know, the United States into Morocco, and then choosing uh, when you were going to have children coming to Montreal. How do you think that changed um, your perspective on on family life or on uh, on journalism? That changed from to from the United States to Morocco to Canada to Montreal. Well, so far as journalism goes. Um you know, in, in journalism, you generally climb the ladder from local reporting, from police reporting to covering the local mayor to going to the provincial or state capital, covering that legislature, and then going to the national capital. Uh, for me, this happened very quickly. Uh, and when I went to Washington, I went to Washington uh, just, I guess, two years after two or three years after being a cub reporter and doing police uh, police work. And I, I was at 26, I think, uh, yeah, 26, I was the youngest uh, Washington correspondent. And so I had a taste of that glamorous life very early. And I didn't have to lust for that anymore. Like mm. a lot of journalists, they want to climb, the, climb that ladder and, and getting to the top of the, their ultimate goal. I, I was lucky, uh, very lucky, and I that happened to me pre- very early, and I realized that it wasn't very. Uh, go back to that term, socially useful, because mm-hmm. I was just one more reporter on the bus, on the campaign bus, uh, and I wasn't doing work that was 
that other journalists could do just as well. But if I were doing, I discovered during that year in Morocco, living in a a really local situation in a village of, of 200 people tucked away in the mountains, uh, I, I realized there that local affairs are what really affect people. Yeah. And I wanted to become a, a local reporter. So it, that's that's what I did. I, I When he came back from Morocco, instead of going back to Washington, I, I came to Montreal, which is, which is a city I love, and wanted to cover local affairs for Montrealers. And I did investigative work and then commentary. And, and as far as, as, as family, you, you, know, you decided to start a family. There are other places you could have gone to to, to live that are French speaking as well, maybe. Uh, I don't know if you'd been here to Montreal prior to uh, going to Morocco. No. Uh, so no. Your choice of Montreal was well. It was the the biggest French speaking city and the, and the only city that had an English speaking newspaper. So that 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 limited my choices. But I, Penny Penny and I, uh, my wife and I have uh, never regretted uh, coming here. It's it's a great city for for raising kids. One of the things that I learned to not like about the United States uh, from a Moroccan village perspective was, was the, what I felt was excessive materialism and the disparity between the classes, between the rich and the poor, and also the, the arrogance, a certain uh, sense of American exceptionalism and you can see how Americans comported themselves in North Africa and in Europe, and they're, they're much greater arrogance than their Canadian counterparts, for example. Yeah. And that's what attracted me to, to Canada. It's a country without a really a real foreign policy and, 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 and no sense of exceptionalism. I think the, 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 the part about you deciding to see something different in Morocco is something exceptional that I think we take for, for granted that maybe people in the United States don't seek out, and I think they do. I think uh, we generalize a bit on and what you're talking about, uh, you know, overconsumption and the way the United States has been implicated all over the globe, especially in, in the periods of time that you're talking about has been seen very much in a negative perspective. But there are a lot of people like yourself, I think, that have gone around the globe for the same reason, to get some kind of perspective on what it is uh, to be a North American. Uh-huh. And to look at it from a country that's in development, a country which is completely different culturally, uh, uh-huh. religiously, linguistically, uh, with a completely different history. So it's it's very interesting. And to that point, um, we can even go a little further to say the the role of the man and the family man in New Jersey, as you knew, uh, in Morocco, in this small village, as you saw, and now in Montreal. How do you think that 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 person? differentiates or how how is that role different if you look at new jersey small village in morocco montreal what are we looking at as terms of a man or a family man well my my father was a prioritized uh family and i think that's influenced uh me of 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 late in the last uh 15 or 20 years or so um I've, when um, 
a grandchild will ask me what the, what what the meaning of life was i had to think hard and i think it's not a career making a big career and making getting a lot of possessions and so on i don't think it's that at all i think it's really um a much more modest and, and satisfying uh meaning i think that human beings really aren't that different from other creatures and you look at the, the meaning of life for for other animals is is very simple it's to make the next generation do well to make one's one's progeny live survive and live well and in turn do the same for for the next generation uh, for their progeny and that holds true whether you're a, an insect or a hamster or an eagle or a or a grizzly bear uh, it's all it's all seen to the perpetuation of, of the species of, of one's own bloodline or one, one's own children mm-hmm. um, and I don't think humans are necessarily in any different I think for, I, I can't speak for anyone else but 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 for me the the, the meaning of life is simply ensuring that that my kids uh, do okay and that and that that they are productive members of society and that their that their own children are that's that's my current view on on uh, on the meaning of life and it's it's something that I derived I guess partly from my father yeah. part, partly f- uh, by seeing a lot of villagers in Morocco and uh, it seems to make sense uh, it it's it's much more satisfying than working extra hard on, on one's career. You know, I you see, uh, living in an urban setting, uh, you see a lot of very ambitious people, whether they be, be male or female, um, who put so much of their energy into their job and perhaps less energy into raising their kids. The kids are often forgotten and I, I call this uh, problem careerism, uh, when one makes a, a fetish of one's career. And I, I think you, I think you you describe it in terms of uh, how your father made his choice and how you made your choice, in that you can you can make sure that there's this symbiosis between you know your your job, your passions, um, your career, but also your family and. Um, this social responsibility. Um, and I think the, when you talked about the richness of local politics in a small village in Morocco, I think that's, I think that talks a lot about in the way you've written and the way you've taken care of the image and city of Montreal in terms of it's not as small a village as, as Morocco, no, no. but it is a very small village in terms of a uh, North American setting in, in, it, in its values. The fact that it's an island, uh, the fact that um, it's very multicultural, the fact that uh, within a Canadian setting, a Quebec setting, uh, it's a very unique place. So it is a, in its way a small, a small village, but a very multicultural village, which is kind of the, the idea of this uh, podcast is to kind of get these, these great perspectives from great people who have made Montreal a great place to live. I think that's one of the 
one of the objectives, I guess, from uh, hearing your uh, your point of view, if you will. Um, how have you have or how have you or if you've communicated um, sort of this idea of uh, careerism? Did you have any discussions with with uh, fellow colleagues when you when you decided to both leave Washington or uh, with your colleagues at the Gazette in terms of like uh, did you connect, communicate these emotions or feelings about how no. people see their no no, no? no. It, it was something that you you kept uh, internally you discussed maybe with your your wife as well yeah 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 no 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 it's not a I, I think people know at the Gazette that I that I, that I work very hard I've worked I worked very hard at the Gazette um, I, mean, I, I won I mean the fact that I'm against careerism doesn't mean that I don't that I don't work hard that I that I dog it uh, I, I won three national newspaper awards and I've written four books and I, I, I think that one can contribute to society in other ways than, than raising a family um, I think we could talk you like you mentioned you you have written uh, four books you said yeah and uh, is there a reason that that you made a sort of started be started writing books became an author and sort of branched out from just journalism uh, was there moments that you said okay well it's time to well the the, the first book i wrote was a spin-off of a series of, of investigative articles that i wrote on on who owns montreal who, who are the the real estate interest who, who are the hidden interests behind the the uh the companies that bulldoze Neighborhoods and, and build skyscrapers. Uh, those those interests were were never really known because there were so many shell companies. Um, so I did. It, this was back in 1976, I guess, an 18 month investigation that took me to seven countries, and the findings were surprised a lot of people, including myself, and a. Uh, book publisher called me and said, listen, I've, uh, I, I, I heard your series discussed on on a talk show on the radio and uh, I haven't seen it, but uh, can we talk about a possible book? And so that's how that first developed. Um, and my most, uh, one, of my, one of my more most recent books was um, inspired by something that one of my kids said when he was six or seven years old. Uh, this is my son, uh, Nick. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Penny and I have four kids, and, and two of them are, are homemade, and two are adopted, and, and Nick uh, is adopted. And he's a African Canadian, and he told us when he was six or seven that, uh, without going too much in the, into the personal side, we could we could tell that it was time to, to tell him more about his his cultural background. And when I was raised in New Jersey as a French-speaking kid, well, bilingual uh, kid, but I spoke French with with my my mother and I, I became very ashamed of of uh, knowing French uh, because back in the 1950s, uh, it wasn't good to be foreign. 
and people who had foreign names would anglicize their names, for example. And it was a lot right. of lot, lot more pressure in that direction than there is today. And I would tell my mother, don't, don't, don't speak French to me in public. And her response was very intelligent. She, she had me read these books on, on uh, French heroes, on Charlemagne, on Charlemagne's knights, Roland and Olivier, mm. on the great uh, French king uh, Henri IV, uh, who went into battle with a big white plume on his helmet and waving his sword as he led as he led his troops on horseback. And you know, you know, when I read this kind of stuff, boy, I thought being French wasn't too bad. It sounds very good. <laughs> so, uh, with uh, I, my, with Nick, I, I, I figured, well, maybe I can find some African heroes. And the thing is, there were no no books for for young people on on Africa on African heroes. There were done dozens of them on. English heroes and French heroes and you know American heroes and Canadian heroes, but but nothing on African heroes, and so I, I figured well, maybe if I if I read a few books on African history, which I didn't know anything about, I could find some heroes and that and for for bedtime stories, and that's how I came across Egypt's twenty fifth dynasty. That was it's the only one of Egypt's uh, thirty one dynasties that all scholars agree was was black and okay. the, the the pharaohs of the of the 25th dynasty came from what's now Sudan and then it was called Kush K U S H the kingdom of Kush and the uh, so the the Kushites were masters of of Egypt for 75 years and boy uh, were they chivalrous i mean they made king arthur look like uh, well, they were they were more chivalrous than that than even King Arthur, and I found this very good material for stories, and I became so intrigued by one of their military campaigns. Let me back up uh, around seven hundred and one B.C.E. the Kushite Pharaoh sends an expeditionary expeditionary army uh, to what's now Israel to confront an Assyrian army that was uh, that had ravaged uh, the, the Hebrew nation of Judah and was on the point of besieging the capital Jerusalem, and so this Kushite and Egyptian army uh, marched. Up in, across the Sinai Desert and up into what's now Israel, and according to the books that I read, it met with dire defeat. And I thought, gee, this is still a pretty interesting story. Uh, I want to know more about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at the uh, primary sources, the actual uh, Assyrian records and the biblical story and a story by uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian. And I saw there was absolutely no reason to assume that this army was defeated. Uh, but every scholar, not, not just the one or two books I read, I'd read at first, said that it was defeated, but the 20 or 30 books and articles that I read afterwards by scholars, distinguished scholars, 
agreed with that assumption that it was defeated because heck who could what what, what kind of Afri african army could stand up to the assyrian army the assyria was the world superpower there was no it had never been defeated it had the largest empire the world had ever seen the entire fertile crescent was this part of the assyrian empire and anyway <laughs> these are european and north american scholars you're both both a north american and and european okay and so i i spent uh eight years researching this just from, just <laughs> just inspired by nick's <laughs> remark he was how old six eight he was he was six or seven okay and uh yeah so i spent uh one year of research for every year that he was alive you, you dedicated eight more years to uh, this research <laughs> yeah but i was thrilled it wasn't it, this is really exciting okay. yes i'm really exciting uh, i'm excited listening to the, the and, history and uh so in 2002 nobody wanted to publish it because i was a journalist i wasn't a scholar i wasn't an, an academic what was i doing writing about it ancient history especially especially um, writing a book that seemed preposterous. Like an, I, the, the thrust of the book was that this African army repelled Assyria and saved Jerusalem. What I heard actually uh, about, what I read about people who, who, who had read your, your book was exactly that, that it was enlightening, so well written, but that unfortunately, because you're not a scholar, yeah. it would be dismissed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But eventually I found a scholar I found a publisher, yes. and uh, uh, that was in 2002. It was published, and um, yeah, it's had it, it's um, the academic world is pretty is now pretty much convinced that uh, the the thesis is is correct. And uh, CBS, the uh, TV network, is uh, intends to do a ten part dramatization of it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I signed a contract in. Well, last June. You put pen to paper last June. I beg your pardon? Pen to paper for yeah. the contract. Wow. So that's that's news. That's This is fresh news. This is, this is, yeah, and it's great because maybe it will help change public attitudes towards uh, ancient Africa. Because right now, everybody assumes, or almost everybody assumes, that ancient Africa was completely on the sidelines when Western civilization developed, you know this 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 military campaign was in seven seven o one BCE, and uh, it had tremendous impact um, quite independently of the uh, Kushite angle. Scholars have said for over a century uh, that if Jerusalem had fallen to the Assyrians. Hebrew culture at that time was so precarious. The, the entire kingdom, except for Jerusalem, had already been ravaged. Hmm. And survivors had been deported. If Jerusalem had, had, had also been conquered by the Assyrians, it would have been the, the end of Hebrew culture, Hebrew society. Uh, Hebrew society would have been extinguished. And if that had happened, Judaism uh, and monotheism uh, would not have evolved several centuries later at, because at the time, 
back in 701 BCE, Hebrew culture was polytheistic, and it was not, it, it was pre-Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if Hebrew culture ha had been extinguished, uh, not only would there have been no Judaism, but there would have been no Christianity, which is an offshoot of Judaism. And there would there would be no Islam, because it, it, Islam also has been greatly influenced by, by Judaism. I think that all of this storytelling which which is what it is i think the, the way you're storytelling this this history um speaks a lot to i guess what your what your father was and that's you being this role model for your for your son because this all came about this story you just explained and the history behind it and the change in perspective on how history is written all came from questions from from your adopted son, which is very, very, very interesting, uh, to say the least. I come, I, I, I have uh, several, several anonymous sources that said that you were a good father. Several <laughs> anonymous sources, but having having had homemade children, I believe you said homemade children, uh, and two adopted children. What what was your your decision with you and your wife and to to adopt two children? To begin with oh well this was back in the 70s when there was um a real concern about the population explosion and, and it was uh today everyone is concerned about climate change but back in the 70s there was great fear about population explosion their bestseller was written about how if, if the world people kept on creating the uh, Having more kids at the, at the current rate, the world would become overpopulated and, and would mass starvation and, and so on. So, Penny and I, our, Penny and I thought that we, did, we would adopt all our children, and uh, we were in Morocco when we made that decision. And we thought, gee, there are a lot of orphans in, in Morocco. Maybe we can adopt a Moroccan child. And but that wasn't in the car. You <laughs> weren't allowed to because we were we were Christian. And Morocco is a Islamic country, and um, the Moroccan government did not want to um, uh, Christianize its its new generation, and so that that idea didn't work. And um, anyway, we we decided on, on a blend of, of both biological kids and adopted kids, and it, and it was it was great. And you, they were both adopted in, in Montreal. Yes, as Montreal. Yes. Oh, okay. I think it's at some point. You know, uh, when 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 parents adopt kids, because you as a father were saying, you know, you had all these stories that your your mother gave you in terms of valorizing why you know you're, you're French and your French your French culture, and you did that research at some point, you know, with with your wife as well to to talk about to give this information to your son. You probably did it for your other daughter as well in terms of giving her some kind of role models, I guess. Yeah. Um, and storytelling, and. Uh, but I think it's always difficult as well, or maybe people perceive it as difficult uh, on what it looks like from the outside. You know, um, people are, you're walking with your kids and you know, they're your kids. And, but from an outside perspective, people may not understand you know, why you adopt or, or you know, uh, look at you differently, maybe. I don't know if you ever felt that or if you ever had any notions about that, or maybe it was even a discussion with your wife on how the family would be perceived in any way. We haven't really thought about that. As I'm, I'm sure people sort of question it, but mm -hmm. 
but it, interracial adoptions are much more common now than they were back in this in the seventies, and I, I think I, I don't I don't think it's I, I I don't know how other people feel, but my, my sense is that when I see a white parent with a uh, a child of color, I don't I don't think twice about it. I, I just assume it's an adoption, and uh, I guess your question um, leads the. To, to, to another question, have we ever met discrimination because of that? And the answer is no. Once in San Francisco, a man who was, uh, I think, uh, probably drunk, yelled at us. Uh, but that is that was certainly not typical. And 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 no, I, I would say <laughs> that I would say that society as a whole, and Montreal in particular, is is a very broad-minded place. And that's one of the reasons that we're we're so happy here. It's one one reason we never we never moved. I think this is a great city for for tolerance, perhaps because this, the foundation of the city is based on tolerance with with the French and the English communities, and the each community has been more or less tolerant of the other. There, there have certainly been political strains between the two communities. Yes, yes, <laughs> but, I agree, but. Uh, They've been nonviolent strains. I mean, from a U.S. perspective, this is the most. This is a politically placid place. When we had this huge separatist, sovereignist uh, crisis, which lasted decades, um, but there was never, never aside from the original minor terrorist terrorism back in nineteen seventy, which was sort of garden variety terrorism with the terrorists arrested there hasn't been uh there wasn't a, a, a fist thrown or uh and hardly a window broken there there, there, there have been no losses of law lo- of, of of life in the ensuing years it's been a, a very i guess you can say bitter at times but also fundamentally cordial uh crisis compared to what most societies that have had strains go through fundamentally cordial is a, yeah. is, a is a good statement um but no I, i i really like i like i love how you you really portray montreal as a as a great place to raise kids as you've said um in a multicultural tolerant uh society where you know it's not only one two languages but you know it's three four languages Um, I think uh, I phrase it as you being a, a true Montreal journalist in that, you know, we have a great relationship with our neighbors to the south, the United States. Uh, you grew up as a, in a French household in New Jersey, which is you know, not necessarily common, and then moved to Morocco, uh, came to Montreal, chose this socially responsible lifestyle as well as to raise a family. And a multicultural family as well, I think it encapsulates a lot of uh, a lot of the the beauty and also a lot of the the positivity of, of Montreal. I think uh, you know again I have uh, witnesses and uh, people that I know that would attest to you know the type of the type of person that you are and the type of person that uh, that you've raised. We're going to stop the. Part one of the interview with Henry Oba. Um, 
we encourage you to tune in to the second part. <laughs>